first of all, I want to dedicate this class to my grandson, who had his birthday yesterday, Eliezer Yehuda Zev Zerkind. I became three years old and uh, received his first haircut, as that was our custom, that we give a boy a first haircut when they're three years old. That's when you leave him the side, side uh, burns, if you call it. Uh, then Pais, where he starts wearing a kippah, and he starts wearing his tzitzis. So Hashem should give him the blessing to be raised in good health. The title of the and uh, that his parents should raise him. My very special son-in-law, Rabbi Mendel Zirkin, who sometimes you get to hear his classes over here. You should get him on more often, but uh, the times that he is, uh, just absolutely fabulous. My daughter, you've been listening to lately. And this is Zc Zirkin, who I'm getting so many, so much feedback about how much her classes are appreciated. So uh, parents uh, should raise him in good health, which means the Torah study, to the wedding canopy, and to a life of continuous good deeds. Uh, we shall have much, much um, if you don't know what that means, you can look it up. It means a deep inner satisfaction and pride that can only come from parents watching their children grow up to be special and unique and make a unique contribution to the world. Anybody else that wants to sponsor this class, um, please let us know after the class. If you enjoy the class, you can sponsor it. If you don't enjoy it, then don't sponsor it. <laughs> Whatever you'd like. Anyways, I think this will be a very enjoyable class, a very deep class, but very enjoyable class, but also very practical and very, very, very pertinent. I found this teaching uh, to give to literally be a resurrection to my soul, if you can call it. Uh, I don't know, a resurrection, because that would mean that, God forbid, <laughs> my soul was dead. I wouldn't say that, but a real, a real refresher and a real much-needed boost, the ideas that I'm going to share with you. Now, I didn't do a class last week, which is Parshas Akef. So this week, we're gonna, this class is going to be somewhat of a combo. It's going to combine uh, the last week's Torah portion, Parshas Akev, and also this week's Torah portion, Parshas Re'eh, and the upcoming month of Elul. We're standing now in between the Shabbos that blessed the month of Elul, which was last week's Shabbos, Shabbos Mavarchim, and the actual beginning of the new month of Elul, which is such a powerful month, the last month of the year, which the month is called Elul, which we all know represents the deepest closeness that we can have with God. To the point that the acronym of the word, the Hebrew word Elul, stands for I am to my beloved and my beloved is to me. So we're standing three days before the beginning of the new month, which begins on the Shabbos. It's going to be two days, Shabbos and Sunday. Very special, powerful Shabbos this week. And to some people, the, uh, to everybody, the question is, how, how, how is this really real? I am to my beloved and my beloved is to me. Obviously, it means on the most simplest of levels, just become more God conscious of, in your life and, and make, you know, make your life a little godlier. Turn to Hashem a little bit more. Not a lot, because if we try to do a lot, we don't do anything. Just a little movement. Anila Dodi means a little movement. Be a little bit more charitable. Pray an extra bit every day. Add a little tiny bit of concentration more to your prayers. 
study a bit more Torah. And that's that's it. But do it daily. But I would like to give today a general shift that represents a more fundamental existential transformation, which is very deep, but yet very doable. It's just switching our mindset. Um, and I think it's very important today because there is, on the other hand, let's present a little bit the negative. There is certain uncertainty in the world. Many people are predicting a looming recession, economic upheaval. And people are worried, people are concerned. Um, whatever news you listen to, whatever absorption you observe, um, it can make us stressed and I would like to de-stress that means I'm not here as a political analysis to tell you what's going to happen as a prophet, I'm not a prophet either I know we're living in Mashiach's times and uh, from the teaching that I'm going to teach you now as a Hashem, you're going to come out with a deeper way of living in which you can live in peace and serenity even if we might go through tumultuous and a roller coaster. I don't know. Someone sent me this like frightening YouTube just 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 yesterday, and I looked at it and I went, "Wow!" I said, "Wow!" If all this happens, God forbid, does that mean that we have to start piling up food supplies and 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 and, and storing up our 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 cabinets with 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 non-perishable foods? If this happens or if that happens, you know, I get these 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 frightening. Um, predictions by different analysts. Someone was directed me to a video of someone describing and looking at the gold in the last couple of days where massive amounts of physical gold was withdrawn from major faults across the world by obviously very wealthy people because they were taken out in chunks of kilos and, and like in a way that we've never seen before, 172 million ounces, like something, maybe even more, in just three days, as an indicator that people that have an inside know-how know that certain things are going on. And as a result of that, this is a warning for everybody. And I, I have to say, I watched. No, but if it is, or is it just a conspiracy theorist, there's a theory or some other. You know, person that's that's making a little noise, or is it true? Uh, and and it, does that mean that 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 one should get a little concerned or worried and start driving him or herself crazy? Or um, so what I do know. This is my information. My information is not from external places it's from the deepest internal sources the deep, deepest internal sources that we are living in the time of the mashiach the lubavitcher Rebbe already told us what he said clearly is a prophecy that these are the times of the redemption and therefore every single news story that i read and i hear or every single um um experience world experience that that happens whether it's a war whether it's some other type of what might seen as an upheaval or a dangerous situation has to always be seen within the context of every second the world is moving more and more and more into the messianic age. And obviously it's possible that there are certain things that fall apart as we move into 
this higher, more godlier existence. And therefore, to humanity as a whole, there might be all kinds of fears and, and, um, and concerns, but every single person as an individual, and that's what I'm, that's what I'm here to tell, to tell everybody that listens to these classes, that you as a person, you as an individual, you with your personal relationship with God needs to appreciate and understand that even if things might go hayward or things might go crazy around you, the nature of what's going on is that God is becoming more revealed, more invested, more engaged, and more openly present in our lives. And therefore, if we react towards these things, not through panic, but we react towards all these things through a deeper connection and a deeper attachment and a deeper, whether again, whether it's what's scaring you or these, these, these predictions of, of doomsday, or even if it's not that, just the general, the general uh, uh, fear of some kind of a recession, of a, some kind of an economic slowdown or whatever it is in which you're afraid or your personal finances and things like that and how you're going to take care of your family and yourself and so forth. Over here is where I'm, tar- I'm turning to you and saying, listen to this class, internalize the message, hear the depth, this deeper teaching. And I think this, again, and for me, it's, it's when I'm teaching this, it's just so, so that I can internalize it for myself. I do have to give a little bit of another thing, which I'd like to say, is that as a result of, you know, COVID and coronavirus and all that on a personal level, um, I have an organization and we do fundraising and so on and so forth. And we always, since when I started, which was about 14 years ago, are carrying a load of, 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 of having to, to support this particular learning center and so on and so forth, which involves fundraising and all that. Um, I, I, I've always experienced Hashem in a very, very open way that God literally drip, drip, drips and feeds, feeds spoon, spoon feeds this center, myself and uh, everybody else that this center has to support literally by the, the, the divine, the divine hand engaged in, 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 in taking care that the bills get paid is not, is nothing short than a miracle. And that I've seen throughout all these years proven again. So it has taught me in the earlier years, I lived with a lot of tension. I lived a lot of, with a lot of anxiety because I really didn't know. But after I've seen it, the miracles literally happening continuously, it brought to me a state of relaxation. Now COVID brought a, a certain challenge on the other end. Since the government was given out kind of free money and loans and so on and so forth, we benefited from that as well. And suddenly the our 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 constant uh, bank which was always literally covering its its daily its daily coverage without an extra cent without you know extra worry about tomorrow so until that time i was used to very much just relying on the constant feeding of god in which he's taking care literally the divine providence to see hashem taking care of whatever i needed i had it i had it it was never a situation in which you know, we, we needed to pay something and we needed to cover whether it's the rent for our center or other, other, um, uh, uh, what do you call it? Payroll and so on and so forth, in which we had a problem. Everything always covered, but it always covered miraculously without knowing where it's coming from. But when COVID came and the government sent some, some hefty amounts of money, suddenly there was a certain, a certain, 
you know, sense of security, which is a false sense of security. There is money in the bank. So I don't have to worry for next month. I don't have to worry for three months from now. There is money now, even though it's borrowed money. One day it has to be paid back to Uncle Sam. We'll worry about it when that happens. But meanwhile, you know, small business economic, you know, economy relief loans, what they were giving of what they call it, SBA loans or whatever. And things are going well. So, but you reach it. But now, recently, it started reaching a point where, you know, those monies are drying out. And I felt this pressure. Oi, we got to get back to this, to this, you know, sense of like, oi, how am I going to, how am I going to support our center? How am I going to carry this? How am I going to continue my work? And for that, I want to thank Hashem for landing this teaching to me. Literally Sunday morning, I opened up a book and I was in transition because I went away for a couple of days just to catch my breath a little bit. And I was coming back and I had to deal with quite a bit of economic kind of future elements. The the center over here, our lease ran up. And we we're talking now about having to go back into a long-term lease. The landlord wants to raise the rent. Where are we going to pay for it? And all these situations, meanwhile, the COVID monies are running out and uh, I haven't done any fundraisers in a while. I'm, I'm giving you my personal experience over here. So there is that, 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 that kind of in the back of my head, this looming fear of anxiety of what's going to happen. Thank God, without looking for it, Hashem delivered to me the medication before the, before the, before the plague, it says. Hashem always delivers. He delivered to me a, a discourse from the Lubavitcher Rebbe from the Rebbe, and it literally lifted me up in such a place that's like, wow, and that's what I want to share with you. So the discourse is really, was said in 1963, and it was um, um, on last week's Torah portion. The Rebbe said it in regards to his father's yard site. The Lubavitch Rebbe's father's name is Rebbe Yitzchak, was a great, great mystic, and he uh, passed away in exile. Last week was his yard site on the 20th day of the month of Av. I think it was last week, Tuesday. So on the anniversary of his father's yard site, and then it was Parshas Eke, which was last week's Torah portion, the Rebbe delivered this discourse. Um, and I just happened to take it out on this Sunday. I wanted to learn something and inspire myself. And here it was. I learned it, and I said, wow, this is what I have to share with everybody. I'm going to make my own connection to this week's Torah portion, which is not stated in the discourse, but most of what I am saying is taken from that discourse. The connection I want to make to this week is just with the opening of this week's Torah portion. The verse this week's in the Torah portion says, God says, see. God says to the Jewish people, see. It's in Deuteronomy. I don't remember which chapter exactly. I don't have a Chumash open in front of me. What the verse says, see, God says, I am given before you, today, the blessing. It says, God says, I'm giving before you the blessing and the opposite of the blessing, right? And if, and the blessings will come, shall you listen to my commandments? And the opposite of the blessing should come, God, you know, God forbid, if, whatever, the opposite. Um, the wording over here is, What's interesting, and which I think is very, very important, is which the commentators also point out, is that the word is not that God says, I gave. There are verses that way where God speaks in the past. See, or, you know, I have given before you two, two paths, the path of life and the path of the opposite of life, and choose life, for instance. Over there, it talks about something that God says, I have given before you. 
in the past. But in our verse, it speaks currently. As if God is talking, it's not just as if, it is because Hashem's words in the in the Torah is living, it's live, it's a live communication. When it comes to this week's Torah portion, God is saying this to me and you today. It's not old, it's not in the past. If the Torah has aged, then you're not really tapping Torah. Torah is a live wire, it's a live communication, which is taking place currently. And each week we focus on the weekly portion. That means that story is re re is, is happening again, and it's happening in real time. And it's our work to you know tap into it. But over here it's so clear because it says it in the in the in the present. See, God says, "I am giving before you the blessing." So when we go back to the the idea of the month of Elul, in which we say, "I am to my beloved," what the the, the first you know, thought and the first idea which helps us shift ourselves into a state of understanding of how I can be to my beloved, which means I can lift my entire existence up and, you know, give myself over, attach myself to God. That's the point. I'm enhancing, I'm deepening my attachment and my awareness to Hashem is by appreciating understanding that Hashem is saying, see, see doesn't only mean I'm telling you information. God is saying it's so clear. If you open, I'm allowing you to see that I am giving before you the blessing. Which means that there is a constant flow where God himself, the infinite, boundless, incomprehensible, unknowable source of sources, the one who creates all of creation and all of existence, and the creation of all of existence, as explained by the Kabbalists and the mystics, is actually not a big deal for him. It's as if it's not, it's, it's so nothing, it's as if it never even happened. That's how nothing it is. And yet that infinite, endless, boundless being is personally, not through any emissary, not through any external channel, not through any um, a mediator, is personally occupied, involved, engaged in giving to me. And each and every one of us that's listening to you, Hashem is giving and taking. As long as you're willing to turn to him and recognize that he is the one giving to you the blessing. I say, he's saying, I'm giving you the blessing. So when you realize that he is the source of everything good and all, whatever you have, and that's right now, that that flow is coming right now, and that you have zero to worry about tomorrow, or you have zero to worry about what's going to happen in three minutes from now. Because right now, God himself is engaged and involved in pumping life into you and, and sustaining you as well. Then, then you give yourself over to him with all your heart and all your being. So it's interesting that that's why it could be that uh, 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 the, the manner in which we can bring ourselves to make this, 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 this main, this very important shift that we're required to do as a preparation for the high holidays that I become so much more aware about my purpose and my mission of what my life is not about myself. My life is not about me, but my life is about me being instrumental in realizing the purpose for what God put me into this world, what God wants of me to do in this planet. So when I come, so that's Anila Dodi, but how, I mean, I, I have my world, I have my, worries, I have my concerns, I gotta, before I can take care and ask myself what God wants of me, I first need to 
being more secure within my own existence that I can, my family relies on me, my wife, my children, my, my, myself. I, I, I need to make sure that my, 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 my retirement funds, my bank accounts, I'm, I'm secure. I'm feeling kind of like I have a bedrock that's holding me. And then after that, I can start thinking about maybe, you know, the good that I can do for humanity. And that's why it's so important that together with the month of Elul comes this week's Torah portion, which says, God says, Re'eh, just take the blinders off your eyes. Re'eh, remove what's covering and what's blocking. And see, Anoichi noisein I, not that I gave you, not that I gave you your body and I gave you your soul and I gave you your business and I gave you your, your, all, your, all your good that you've ever had. No, I am giving it to you this very moment. And who is giving? doesn't even mention God's name. It says, Anochi. God is being so up and personal. Literally, he's being up and personally saying, I, I who I am, beyond all definitions, I, my entire self, me, as, as, I, as much as I am God, I am concerned in packing you your lunch. I am giving you, I am taking care. And then we realize how privileged we are that God is so engaged and so intimately involved with us. So it ain't too hard to turn around and say, Ani my first and primary concern in my life is I am to my beloved. God, what do you need? What are your needs? What are your wants? What, what can I do for you? Because you're doing so much for me. So this idea of feeling and this going beyond all the external veils and curtains, because from the more physical and earthy and 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 uh, materialistic type of consciousness, which our body, because our body is thick and chunky and dense, um, the vision that our body, our physical, you know, sensors transmit to our brain, and what is that? That you know, the world is just a natural world, and the world is run by certain r- r- rules, regulations, systems, whether they're man-made systems, economic systems, whether they're other forces of nature, which are just systems. They are the way things run. And therefore, uh, you know, my security is dependent on all these billion different, you know, systems have to all work out. And I got to like really be on top of it and really position myself to be in a good place that, you know, when the, when the, when the rain comes down the mountain, you know, flowing down, I have, I pushed myself and pushed everybody away so that I can stand there with my bucket and collect the waters of life. Of course, I'm using that as an example of a person feeling the, 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 being so insecure that we feel that we need to secure our existence and our life by all means possible to, 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 to be in a position to take care of ourselves. And then again, then, get, then God gets put in the, on the back burner. But when we put, when we recognize that, no, that we can lift ourselves up to a state of recognizing that a deeper consciousness, that all that is, simple words, baloney. All that is just a veil. All that is just a concealment. That's all, you know, the Hashem created a challenge in which he plays with our sense, he plays with our mind intentionally to see how wise we are, that we can get past all of that. 
I recognize that the, that is all a facade. All of that is, in Yiddish we say, babamaisis. It all appears so. It has no validity whatsoever. God himself is f- spoon-feeding each and every one of us all the time, every second. And he himself, literally, without any, nothing, nothing to do with any economic systems. The economic systems is nothing other than he himself. And therefore, which he can manipulate and turn them, and their very energy and their very power is all that it is, is just a cover-up on him. And when we realize that and lift ourselves up into the higher consciousness, then we are so secure. We are so calm. The only concern we have is how can I serve God better? That's the concern. If there's anything to be concerned about, it's whether I can look God in the eye today in the morning and say, God, I'm hungry. Can you take care of me? And then I have to ask myself, how, how deserving am I? But we also remember that God's infinitely compassionate and infinitely caring and infinitely loving. And he wants us, to, he wants to give us his infinite blessing. He really does. And if maybe yesterday was not so good, okay, which means, what do you mean yesterday was not so good? I was a lousy subject. I was a lousy creature in God's world. I even forgot that I was a creature. I thought the whole world is all about me, that I'm subject of God. Okay, that you can fix. How can you fix it? This very second. It doesn't take long to fix that. Fix that right now. Say to God, Hineni, I'm here. What do you want from me? And the moment you've done that, you're, you're already back eye to eye with God. He wants, <laughs> let me put it this way. He wants our relationship very, very much. So the moment we're willing to do so, it's not like, you know, oh, maybe, you know, he wants, he really does. He created it. He created the world. He created all of us because he wants a relationship with us. So it doesn't make a difference how much we've kind of messed up in the past. At this very second, you it's all in our hands. See, if my well-being, my security, my finances, my, 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 my health, my whatever, are dependent on all the systems, then you can really be messed up if you're wrecked yourself or put yourself into a very unhealthy state or if you put yourself into a very 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 you know you acted very recklessly and very irresponsibly and now you find yourself in a really in a real rut and in order to fix it you need to come on to a million other different things that need to be fixed then you have something really to be worried about something to be scared and then again if as we spoke at the beginning of the class if the economic system you know, might collapse or whatever happen or some recession or some deep recession will will happen. And we really have to, because we're really, you know, and then you can really feel helpless. But if it's only Hashem and he is the only one and that's, see, but that's not easy. It's not easy. It's easy to listen to the, in the class. It's not easy to really, really, really remember this every day and every morning. When we remember it every morning and every second, then we're, outside of all the systems. Because the way God would, works with us is he works with us, he's your shadow. If you want to live within the systems, if you want to play by all the rules and regulations of this great facade, then God allows you to do that. And then you're out there like a being pushed around like a ping pong ball. And it really is happening to you because that's where you placed your consciousness and that's where you placed your trust. But if you turn around and trace your trust only in God, then God deliberately is 
taking care every second of you and your family, every every split second. And there's no more soothing, calmer, beautiful place to be in. That's all the introduction. Now let's take a look and see when did the Jewish people live that way when they were in literally God cradling them and holding them. And what I am saying is that being that we're entering now into messianic times, we are going back into that state of existence that we were at that time. It was a golden time in history. The 40 years when we went, when we were traversing the desert, it was during that time that God was giving us man from heaven. The manna was a food, right, that Hashem provided. Jews had absolutely, based on all experts, scientific experts, there was no way that 2 million or 3 million people can survive 40 years in an Arabian, empty, desolate desert. Men, women, and children. God was personally sustaining them. Water was coming from a rock. Sandwiches were coming down from heaven. And when they wanted meat, they got big rain showers of quail. Came out of nowhere. Mounts of quail that dropped out of the sky. But even more, they got bread from heaven for 40 years every single day. God literally displayed that he is feeding them. So last week's in the Torah portion, the Torah makes reference to this special time. However, the Torah tells us regarding that special um, spoon feeding um, experience, the Torah uses very interesting language. Moses, Moshe, is rebuking the Jewish people and telling them about their whole, at the end of the 40 years, reviewing what happened. And he says, Vayamcha, there's a verse that says, let me actually take a chumash, so we can tell you which verse it is, it's a very important verse. The Pasuk says, the verse says, Oh, here. Uh, so let's read. I'm going to start with a verse before that. This is in Deuteronomy and Devarim, Perik Ches, Pasuk Beis. The Pasuk says, You should remember the whole journey, the whole way. That God led you for 40 years. Bamidbar in the desert. In order to afflict you. And why did God want to afflict us? In order to test you. To know what's in your heart. Will you observe his commandments? If you won't observe his commandments. He afflicted you. And he starved you. Or he let you go hungry. And he gave you to eat. He fed you with the man. Which is the manna. Um. That you've never known. Your parents have never known. This comes to teach you. That man doesn't live, a man is not sustained only by bread. And the word of what comes out of God's mouth, man can live. Simple meanings and means when you're in the desert, you had no bread supply. Yet you lived because God, what came out of God's mouth which meant that God decreed that bread should come from heaven, which obviously wasn't a regular a regular bread that we know. It was a heavenly bread. 
So God is teaching you, listen here, I'm taking care of you. I got, I got your, I, I've got your back. I've got you covered. That's the verse. Now the interesting thing is, that this is the only time in the Torah when the Torah describes the man, the mana, right? I'm going to call it man because that's the way we refer to it in Hebrew. Um, when Hashem gave us the man and all the places where the Torah talks about the man, it always mentions it in a very complimentary terms. It speaks very highly of the man, telling us how amazing it was. And it does mention that the Jewish people did complain about it. They had certain complaints. For instance, they complained that they're eating the same food day and night, right? And they complained that um, they're not going to the bathroom because the man was, had no, no, usually food is, has good stuff and not such good stuff. And the body acts as a filter. As a, it, 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 it takes out the beneficial nutrients and vitamins and whatever from the food. And whatever is junk, the body expelled. But the man had no junk. So the whole man was absorbed in their bodies. And they, so they talk about people having things to, to complain about, people who want to complain. So their complaint were, was that they're not going. So what's wrong? So you're not going to the bathroom. So what is, but you're okay. You're feeling good. You're feeling terrific. You're full of energy. I'm sure they were bursting with energy eating this godly food. You're feeling terrific. That's your problem. But I guess when you're looking for problems, you can always find problems. But that was, so when it when the Torah mentions something negative about the man, it's what the people are saying. Not God forbid coming from Moshe. Now Moses or Moshe should say something bad, negative about the man. Over here it seems to be um, implying that the man and the experience of eating the man was a very difficult and, and, and harsh experience. It says he inflicted you. Moshe is telling the Jewish people, yes, God put you through the ringer. He put you through some extreme hardship in the desert by inflicting you and making you hungry and giving you the man. Now you can learn it and explain it to mean as follows. He brought you to the brink of starvation and then he fed you the man so that you can see that the man came to satisfy your starvation. So then we wouldn't, he wouldn't be saying anything negative on the man. The man is kind of the remedy to the problem which was created. Moshe is saying that God orchestrated this because God wanted to test you, test your trust in him and so on and so forth. But the man itself is not part of the affliction. The, the man came, was part of God's um, salvation to the affliction. However, it, that's not the case. What it really means is, we'll see it from different Talmudic sources, that the actual man itself was a food of starvation. The, the food of the man itself was, was hungry food. It was food that was, we'll see why that was, that it was actually not satisfying. And it left them hungry. So it seems like Moshe is saying something derogatory about the man. And we don't find that anywhere else that we should speak in the negative about the man. We only speak about the, com- the good about the man. So that's strange. The other thing we need to understand is that in, in last week's Torah portion, there's also the famous commandment that we're supposed to make a blessing after we eat, the grace after the meal, which we call Birkat HaMazan, or we refer to it 
more commonly as benching, which is a blessing we make after we eat, we derive it last week's Torah portion. It says, V'achalta, you should eat, V'savata, you will be satiated, U'barachta, Hashem Alekecha, you will bless God. You should bless God for the food that you eat. So, that's why we know that we're supposed to always make a blessing. Um, we bless always Hashem for the food before we eat, and we bless God for the food after we eat. Call the grace after the meal, Birchus Amaz. Now, what's biblical is the, is, the, is the blessing we make after we eat. The blessings we make before we eat is not biblical, it's rabbinic. Fine. And even the blessings after the eat, it's mainly when you eat a satiating food, which is considered bread. When you're eating bread, then you have to make a blessing afterwards. Again, we make blessings on all foods that we eat, even if it's not bread. But that's more a, a rabbinic obligation. Now, in the nusach, which means in the actual wording in which we bless God after a meal, in our benching, it is composed from actually four blessings, four primary blessings. And the sages tell us in tractate uh, brachis, in the first tractate of the Talmud, that this order, this compilement of blessings that was compiled, and this makes up our grace after meal, these four blessings came about in different stages. The first blessing was instituted by Moshe. When God fed the Jewish people by the by feeding them the man from heaven, Moshe was the one who composed the first blessing of our benching, of our grace after the meal. Um, and that concludes with the words, Barachat HaShem, Hazan Esakol, that God sustains everybody. Okay? Then comes the next blessing. No Delecha, I will thank you, HaShem. Uh, and we think, we go through a, a blessing for a lot of the good things that God has done for us. He took us out of Egypt. And, and then we conclude this, this blessing, Barachat Hashem, thanking God on the land and on the food. So again, we're thanking on food. But this time we're thanking for food and we're mentioning also the earth or the land. So the sages say, who instituted this second blessing? This came the generation after Moshe. That means the Jews in the desert only said one blessing. That was the first blessing. Once they went into the land of Israel, Yahushua, Joshua, was the one who composed the second blessing. Um, Barachat Hashem. And, uh, now, and that one we're thanking God on the land. Because until then we didn't have a land that we can call ours. But once we entered the land of Israel, so now that land is our land. So we say, Barachat Hashem, on the earth, on the land, and on the food that comes from the land. Or that Hashem gave us such an amazing land, the land of Israel, which we know is a land that is so fertile and so special. It's a land that flows milk and honey. So that's the second blessing. Then comes the third blessing, which was instituted once the, we established our capital in Jerusalem. So the second blessing, the third blessing is a prayer for Jerusalem. Rachem Hashem We're saying, have mercy, God, on the Davidic kingdom and on Yerushalayim and all that. Who instituted that blessing? King David, David HaMelech, when he established the city of Yerushalayim. That's when we added the third blessing. Why that has to do with thanking God for food is not for now. And the reason it's not for now because I don't even remember the reason. But there, somehow that too is etched on as the third blessing that we thank God for the food. Then comes the fourth blessing, which happened much later, 
after the destruction of the second temple, um, when by the uh, Bar Kochva uprising, millions of Jews were slaughtered. The Romans and their vicious hatreds of the Jewish people didn't allow the bodies to be buried for a very, very long time. And it was a horrible disgrace. Everybody knows that in Judaism, it is a very high priority to bury a, 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 a to bring a, 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 a deceased to a proper Jewish burial. And by the way, just parenthetically, um, um, uh, what do they call it? Um, cremation is a terrible, terrible disservice to a, to a person. It should never, ever be done. So if you know anybody that is being cremated, do whatever you can to stop it because it is very, very important. As God told Adam, Adam Arishan, the first human being, you're made up of earth and to the earth you should return. It's very important because it, ha- it helps preserve the body of the resurrection. Once a body is cremated, I'm not saying there's no resurrection, but it's not so simple. So therefore, it's so that time the Jews were in terrible destroyed. Not only were millions of Jews massacred and and brutally murdered, they were left in such a disgraceful manner, and they did not merit to be buried. At a certain time, finally, permission was granted, and all these bodies were buried, and that was considered such a great relief, and that so they added another blessing just for that, which is like astounding. These are the four blessings that make up the primary um, benching, what we call the grace after meal. The question I'm presenting to you today, and again, this is from the Rebbe's discourse, the question that he asks, which is such a powerful question, is that based on this idea, the, the first blessing that we, that, we, that we make is the one that Moshe was the one that composed, and that was the blessing that the Jewish people made when they ate bread from heaven, when they ate the month. And that's how they thanked God for that. So there's two questions of it. Number one, today we're not eating the month. If we're not eating the month, why are we still making that blessing? We should start with blessing number two, the blessing that has to do with going into the land and getting the land of Israel. And then the bread that we eat, that's a different type of a bread. It's not bread coming from heaven, it's bread that comes from the earth. So which blessing would be applicable to us? The blood that comes from earth. See, the first satiate, the first blessing which we're thanking God for his for for his his feeding of us was talking about a special temporary state of n- nurture where God was nurturing us and feeding us and sustaining us when he was in a miraculous way in the desert. We don't have that today. So number one, why do we even make that blessing today? Number two, and this is the more important question. The first blessing, as we said, is is a blessing for bread that comes from heaven. The second blessing is earthy bread, bread that comes from earth. The difference between them is, is that bread that comes from heaven, we said earlier, how does, what does Moshe say about that bread? He said, God gave you a bread that, in a bread of affliction, bread that makes you hungry. Bread that makes you hungry. Bread of starvation. If that's the case, we would think that that bread doesn't have any satiating qualities. It keeps you alive, but it doesn't satiate you. You don't feel full. You don't feel satisfied. Yet, in that blessing, we say, 
va'achalta you will eat v'savata and you will be satiated. However, in the second blessing that we make on the bread coming from earth, we don't say that verse. We don't quote the verse. We don't mention anything about satiation. We just thank God for food. Now, it should have been vice versa. The man didn't have satiating qualities. The Now, first of all, where do we know that from? Because we said it. We had a verse. The verse in last week's Torah portion, Pashas Ekev says that Hashem fed you man, vayancha, he inflicted you, vayarivecha, he hungered you, vayachilcha, someone he gave you, eat the man. So you see from there that the food made you, was not satiating. Now, I want to, I want to clarify that a little bit because one can technically argue, no, he put you into a desert where you were hungry. And you didn't have food until you called out to God and God fed you. And once he fed you, you weren't hungry anymore. But the sages say no. And th- I didn't tell you the source about this earlier. I mentioned this, but now I'm going to give you the source. It's a, it, in tractate Mesechtas Yuma. Okay, these are the laws of Yom Kippur. So it's interesting. Over here, the Gemara is, the Talmud is dealing with, we all know Yom Kippur is, the, is a fast day. And it's a biblical fast day. It's the only biblical fast day is Yom Kippur. So on Yom Kippur, um, we don't eat. Now the Torah never says that you're not allowed to eat on Yom Kippur. There is no such verse. The verse says you should inflict yourself. The verse says about um, this day, uh, um, you should inflict your your yourselves, your 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 bodies, your soul. You should inflict yourself. How do you know what infliction is? Maybe infliction can mean so many different things. Maybe you should put all kinds of pokey little pebbles in your in your shoes and walk the whole day. And every time you put your foot down, you get poked by little thorns or little pokey stuff. That's an infliction. I don't know. Everybody can come up with all kinds of genius ways in order to make themselves uncomfortable. Maybe it means going to a very, 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 very hot, 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 hot place that you can't stand the heat and stay there. Or go roll in the snow. And be freezing cold till you're frostbitten. Infliction. So many different ways of infliction. How do we know what the infliction is? But we know that the only thing that you're not allowed to biblically do on Yom Kippur, other things are considered more rabbinic, or maybe even on a higher level than rabbinic. We don't engage in, in intimacy uh, during the 24 hours of Yom Kippur. We don't wash or bathe on Yom Kippur. We don't wear leather shoes. But these are all secondary. The highest prohibition on Yom Kippur, the only thing that one has put is, is, is you know, punishable by incision, karis, their soul gets cut off from God if someone deliberately eats or drinks on Yom Kippur. How do we know that? Because it says you should inflict yourself. But how do we know the infliction is of food? So the, 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 the sages debate and they, they derive it from various different places. And finally, they say, because it mentions over here infliction, and it mentions by the man, infliction. So just like by the man, the infliction involved food. It was a food infliction. It was a infliction. Like the verse says explicitly, he inflicted you by starving you. So we see from here that when the Torah says infliction, it's infliction through starvation. So the Talmud says, but what do you mean? He inflicted you, he's starving you, and he gave you to eat the man. If he gave you the man, 
then you weren't inflicted anymore, then you're not starving anymore, because now you're eating. So the Talmud answers, So two, two sages give their explanation of why the man was, even though they ate the man, it was still an infliction. Kadamar, one, one of the sages says, the problem with the man is, yes, they always had whatever they needed. But the problem is they never had any security for food for tomorrow. The man was a daily occurrence. And if you try to put away for tomorrow's meal, you know, if you try to hoard a little bit man, and you can seal it in a nice little, you know, uh, clay jar or whatever they had. And put away for tomorrow because you're in the desert. The children will be hungry. You're waking up in the morning without a, without an, without a tree in sight. Besides pokey, uh, you know, cactuses maybe here and there. There's nothing to eat. Scorpions, snakes, and that kind of stuff. Nothing edible. So what's going to be with tomorrow? Well, with the man, we all know the rule. If you put away man for tomorrow, it became unedible and wormy. That's what it says explicitly that happened by the man. So they couldn't, they couldn't hoard, they couldn't lock up food for tomorrow. And so the sages say, that's why it left you hungry. Because you can't compare a person who has bread in his basket to a person who doesn't have bread in your basket. Now, so even if you're eating, if you're living on the edge, and you have no idea where your next meal is coming from, you are hungry. That's one of the one of the sages' explanation why the man left us hungry, because they never, ever had a plan for tomorrow, other than lifting their eyes up to God. And that's not necessarily always so easy to feel like your, your food is ready. Imagine, there's nothing in the refrigerator. There's nothing in the cabinet. Nothing. <laughs> not even a little flour that you can make something out of. There's nothing there. So that's why it left them hungry. That's one opinion. So what do you see from here? That even after they had the mum, it was still hungry. They were starving because they didn't know what's going to be tomorrow. Chadamar, a different one of the other sage says, it wasn't that lacking of the mum. It was another problem with the mum. You can't compare one that can see and eat to someone who can't see and eat. The man was not satisfying to the eye. You know, the Rashi explains, it means as follows. The man had every taste. Whatever you imagined it to taste like, it tasted like. You know, you wanted scrambled eggs in the morning, the man tasted like scrambled eggs. You wanted an onion omelet, it had a taste of an onion mom. Okay? You decided that in the morning you want to have French toast, your man tasted like French toast. You wanted pancakes, it was pancakes. You wanted oatmeal. With maple sauce, syrup, whatever. It was oatmeal. Whatever. Any type of food you wanted. You wanted to take sushi, wasabi. You had sushi, wasabi. Whatever. Whatever the thought was. Pizza, pizza. Lasagna, lasagna. <laughs> whatever. Eggplant, parmesan. You got that too. Whatever was in your plain, simple rice krispies or cornflakes. You had that as well. Any type of food you wanted to the month to taste like, it tasted. The sages say there were a few things that the month, the verse says, and the, that the month would not taste. I think onions not, and leek, 
because it's not good for pregnant women, whatever. So uh, there were certain things, nursing women, so the few tastes that were excluded, but everything else you can taste everything. Yet, it always looked the same. The man hardly looked like anything. It was a clear white type of food, and all you saw on your plate was this colorless, white, non-appetizing food. You can have every taste. It was magical. Anything you wanted to taste, it tasted like. But it was, to the eye, it was without any color. And when your eye doesn't see, now we, we, we don't appreciate how much visualization has impact on the food that we eat. The food, when the food, that's why, you know, in all, in all food, in all cooking uh, shows and uh, uh, magazines of food, of cuisine, it's all in the photography. It's all about so much in a restaurant, of a good restaurant, is how they make the food look when they bring the food out, how they drizzle the, you know, the sauce on it and so on and so forth. And, and it also, it's an art. And when you make food look good, it's already 50% of the experience of the eating is that the eye eats, literally the eye eats. When the eye looks at the food and it looks scrumptious, it looks good, it already satiates. But because it was visualless, there was nothing to look at, when they ate it, they let, were left hungry. They weren't satisfied. So there's two reasons the Talmud says why the man was called the food of affliction. For 40 years, they had no idea where the food is coming from tomorrow. So the, the need for a human being to always feel like I have, I have a little bit in my basket. At least I have two meals. Now that I don't have two meals, you feel like so, so robbed. You feel so helpless. That's what made them hungry. And the second problem with it was that it didn't look like anything. As scrumptious as it can be, as tasty as it can be, without the look of it, it was, and that's why they were hungry. Based on this idea that we just understand it, that the man was the most unsatisfying of foods, and therefore it didn't, it didn't, it didn't fill them. Why is it that the blessing that we make for man, the first uh, the first blessing, which is referring to the man. Remember, in the benching, the first blessing is referring to the man. And on that, over there we say, you will eat, you will be satiated. Hold it. You can't be satiated. It's unsatiatable food. But on the other food, which is the next blessing, which is finally they came into the land of Israel. And they can eat real pasta, not food that they're imagining to be linguine or pasta or whatever. They can eat real French toast. They can have real omelets or real, you know, bread coming from the earth. That's and also they can fill their storage houses. They had farms. They had store, and you know, once they were in the land of Israel, they had their retirement funds. They had they had security. It's what we call in America financial security. Everybody wants financial security. You should know what how you're going to be taken care of already. Everybody's busy putting away in 410Ks or whatever they call it, 401Ks. Or I don't know. See how disconnected I am from that whole <laughs> financial security. I don't even I don't even know what they're called. In any case, I'll leave my wife deal with 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 these issues. But the but the idea is retirement funds, all this kind of thing. They had it in the land of Israel. Once they had it. So that's filling. Yet, in that blessing, it doesn't say you're full. That doesn't work. That doesn't work. 
Let's add one more point to it. We said earlier that the sages derive Yom Kippur. The sages derive Yom Kippur um, the affliction of Yom Kippur from the affliction of the man. Now, what do we do on Yom Kippur? Do we eat tasteless food? Do we empty out our house that there shouldn't be a morsel of food? Throw everything out. There's not a tiny bit of food in your home so that we don't have the security, food security. Grocery stores emptied out, everything. We don't have security. And then we take and we eat food that is not allowed to have any coloring and not allowed to look like anything, just plain white, boring, you know, what we call, I mean, you know, dead food, lifeless food. Afflicted. Affliction like the month. We don't do that. What do we do in Yom Kippur? We don't eat for 24 hours. Actually, it comes out to be a little more than 24 hours that we don't eat. When he says that we're supposed to really fast 26 hours, it's a question how that, how we, how that works exactly. Because you start at sunset and you don't, uh, you start a little bit before sunset and then you don't eat till stars come out the following night. So it's like, about 25, and you go into the 26th hour that you don't eat, which corresponds to God's letters of God's name. But in any case, we don't eat at all. So how is it that we, which means not the it was non-satiating food. Yom Kippur, the affliction is that it's not food at all. There is no food. So what do we see from here? on a deeper level, that really, the real experience of man, if you we compare Yom Kippur and derive Yom Kippur from the man, so we have to go back to the man and say something deeper about the man. The, non, the non-satisfying element of the man was not only that it didn't leave you satiated, it was literally a non-food. Same like Yom Kippur, which is a non-eating. It was always a fasting. So the Jewish people lived fasting 40 years, although that they ate. But on the one hand, the, the verse says explicitly, Vayachilcha, God gave you to eat the mud. So it clearly is a food. But at the same time, being that we compare it to Yom Kippur, which is non-eating, so it was no eating. And here lies the secret of everything we're talking about today. The secret of the paradox of eating and non-eating. How to be able to eat the the non-edible. How to be satiated even from food that is unsatiatable and yet to be satiated. Where do we see that? Because on the blessing on the food, which is the blessing which we make on the man, which we spoke about, the first blessing, which man is the verse, as we said earlier, is a non-satiatable type of a food. Actually, the Midrash even says further. The Midrash tells us something amazing. Not only did the man, the people are hungry, okay? You're hungry naturally. Without food, you get hungry. Now when you eat... So eat, first of all, sustains you to live. The man did that. The man kept them alive, kept body and soul together. 
they were alive. And more than that, they felt strong. They had strength and everything, but they weren't full. So it left them with a sense of hunger, of starvation. But what's, what's the hunger? Is the hunger the food or the non-food? The way we understand it based on everything we said till now is when you don't eat, you're hungry. Or even if you eat, but if you can't see what you're eating. Actually, the sages, by the way, derive from here that a blind person is always hungry. It's a frightening thing. Blind, blind people are not satiated in the same way. It's a sad situation. And when you're blind, you're not really getting sustained because you, since you can't see and you don't have the visual experience of food. But now we're saying, but, but, but all, with all of that, what does it mean? The hunger is not coming from the food. The hunger is coming from the fact that a body gets hungry when it doesn't eat. In order to stop that hunger, you have to eat. Not only do you have to eat the visualization of the food and the fact that you have enough stored away for tomorrow and next week and so on and so forth. That itself like helps you feel full. So in that case, the man did not solve the problem. Okay, Based on what we're saying now, the man did not solve the problem. The man didn't make it worse. The man just did not solve it. It says, if the man did not take care of this issue, of, of, the, of, the, of the filling element, the man did not resolve. But that's it. It didn't resolve it. But the man is not the problem. But the Midrash says something more than that. The Midrash says that the man itself is called Macho Ravan. It feeds hunger. That's a whole different story. The hunger is coming from the man itself. That when you ate the man, you were hungrier than before you ate. That's a whole that's a whole different story. You became hungrier from the man. The man was feeding you. It nurtured your body, but you know what else it nurtured? It nurtured your hunger. They became hungrier and hungrier the more they ate the man. Oh, that was nasty then. It's actually making me hungry. It's a food that fed hunger. Usually feeding hunger means you're feeding so that you're, you feed the hungry, so the hungry are not hungry anymore. Here you're feeding the hunger. By, in other words, intensifying the hunger through the food itself. Oh, that means almost that the man is not eating at all. It's, it's, not, it's not fixing, it's only making things worse. And it's the most unsatisfying it's anti-satisfying. It's anti-fullness. Anti-satiation. But hold it. On that very month we say, the visavata, you will eat and you will be satiated. That's the whole entire trick of messianic living. Is to be able to live and be satiated from the unsatiatable. To be full and to be literally satisfied. From an unsatiating food, quite on the opposite, from a food that makes you hungrier, and yet you're full. That's a paradox. That doesn't make any sense. It's a contradiction. Well, that's everything. When you're in a relationship with God, you got to get comfortable with contradictions. That's the entire trick of what we're going to talk about today. It's not a trick. It's a higher form of living. And that's why it's actually similar to Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is coming in how many days? About 43 days. And for those who 
only fast Yom Kippur because it's the only biblical, you know, sometimes we have other fast days in the Jewish calendar, but Yom Kippur is serious, most serious of them. Sometimes you get it, you know, I'm starving Yom Kippur. Are you supposed to starve Yom Kippur or are you supposed to be fed Yom Kippur? So let me read you an interesting verse from Tehillim. The verse says in Psalm 33, let the righteous sing to God, in God. So the verse says, um, The eye of God is to those who fear him. To those who look out for his kindness. Special relationship that God has to those who look out for his kindness. Now what does Hashem do to these people who look out for his kindness? To save their souls from death. And to sustain them in the hunger. Simply it means God takes care of those that are, that he, that, that, that fear him. Those who serve him. God takes care of them. How does he take care of them? Even when there is a plague. He saves them from the plague. Even when there is a famine. He sustains them. We know that Elijah the prophet, Elio Anavi, was hiding for a very long time in the caves. He was escaping the, the king, uh, which king it was over there, Izebel, Queen Izebel. She was killing out all the prophets. And he went and he hid. And the ravens brought him meat. God has ways of sustaining those that are, uh, those who fear him. Right? Well, that's the clear miracle. The Jews in the desert, they feared him because they, by heart, but even though we speak so much about the Jews complaining, but on the other hand, they feared God. They they stood at Mount Sinai. They took upon themselves a life of the of of servitude to God. So they feared Him. So God sustained them. That's the simple meaning. Lachiyosam to sustain them barav in the hunger. But here's a deeper meaning. Reb Shneir Zalman of Liadi, the great Hasidic master, right, the author of the Tanya. We always learn his teachings. He reads something so deep over here. Lachyosam berav means to enliven them in the hunger itself. That the hunger itself satiates and gives life. It's the paradox that we're talking about. Where the hunger itself is sustaining. The fasting is sustaining. And what does he say? He's, he says that's, that's Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is a time that we're not starving. We're being fed through our fasting. We're being fed through, what is that? We'll, see, we'll soon see what that means. To be enlivened in the hunger. So really, if Yom Kippur, I'm not really, God forbid, going to you know, make a blanket statement that anybody who doesn't feel this way is not really tapping Yom Kippur. God forbid, it's not what I want to say. Our bodies are bodies, and some people fast better than others, and some people have a hard time fasting. They really don't feel well. Their bodies go... You know, but on a deep spiritual level, Yom Kippur is supposed to be a day of the highest level of satisfaction. A day where you literally don't have to eat. And it's not because you're distracted, because you're busy serving, worshiping God. You're really in such a deep connection to God. You're distracted from the food. The non-eating itself is feeding you. You're being enlivened in the hunger. Same idea that we're talking about the man. The man was a food that should make someone starve. 
And yet, it's possible not to starve from the mud. God is testing you by starving you through the mud. But if you have the right attitude, you don't starve in the mud. You're not, you're not only frustrated. See, when the Jews ate mun, they can have two reactions. They can reach the most frustrated mind going, being driven absolutely crazy by it, by the mun, and going nuts from frustration. Or they can be living in the state of the highest level of satisfaction and pleasure and delight. And the most fulfilling state of existence. And that's where I want to, this is exactly where we're heading at in this discussion. How to be in a state of the deepest satisfaction when you are being treated to God's sustenance of man. How to be satiated. So how does it work? How does it work? So the way it works is as follows. It's a very, very, very deep idea. The way it works is as follows. Um, uh, you know, there's, I'm going to, in the discourse that, that, that I'm basing this off, he talks about another form of eating. So we're going to stop for a moment. We are going to put physical nurture and physical eating aside, the food for our body, and we're going to talk for a moment about we're going to talk for a moment about the food for our soul, about eating spiritually. Hold on one second over here. So we're going to talk a little bit about the the spiritual type of food: food for the soul, food for the um, just like food, just like eating, a physical eating is um, just like when the body eats, the body takes food in and the body then digests the food and absorbs it and takes it in and so on and so forth. There is also a phenomenon of, of spiritual eating. Um, what I'm going to do now, just to make things easier for me, is I'm going to continue the class from a different room because someone came over here to clean up and so I'm going to take a little break. It's going to be a little, not as um, we go to another room so I don't hear the the, the distractions over here. We'll make it much easier. So bear with me for a moment. We're going to move locations. I am. It's okay. Yeah, yeah, no, fine. I'm going to do it in another room.
relocated. Okay, so there's another form of eating. The other form of eating is study. It's an, an interesting thing, when, especially when it comes to the man. One of the things it says about the man is the Torah says, when in, in a different place, and I think in Parshas Baaloscha, in Numbers, over there the Torah says about the man, God, that the man looked like coriander seed. It was round, like coriander seed. Um, the sages make an interesting comment on it when it says it was round like coriander seed, that the word God has the same root of the word agada. Agada means a certain portion of Torah. That the man was compared to agada, which is the midrashic elements of Torah. In Torah, if you study Talmud, you study, uh, you know, most of the study is dealing with hardcore law, legal discussion, and so on and so forth. That's one part of the Torah. There's another part of the Torah that deals more with midrashic talk, which is more stories, more ethical types of, uh, more spiritual type of teaching, if you can call it. So the Talmud says the man was like the the Agada, which is this part of the Torah, which is teaches, which is more spiritual, more midrashic. What is the secret of this midrashic part of the Torah? So the Midrash says um, that just like midrash pulls the person's heart. It, it it draws you, it pulls you. When you start learning it, you want to learn more. It's interesting. It provokes curiosity. It wakes up in you a, a thirst for more and more. So it creates within you more thirst and a longing for more knowledge. So to the man, as we said earlier, created more thirst. It made you hungrier. Same idea that we discussed earlier. So based on this idea, we're going to take, we're going to analyze eating, but not eating in the realm of the physical eating. We're going to analyze now for a moment um, a spiritual kind of eating in which we're also going to find two types of food. A A spiritual type of eating, which means the mind eating knowledge. When the mind eats knowledge, information, there's two types of knowledge. There is a knowledge that satiates the mind. We're gonna we're now going to exchange the stomach for the brain, the mind. The brain is now going to become the 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 stomach. So just like the stomach, right, gets hungry, and when it's hungry, it wants food, the mind also gets hungry. And just like when it comes to the stomach, we spoke earlier, there's two types of food. There's a food that satiates you. When you eat it, you feel full and satiated. And there is food that doesn't satiate, like we discussed earlier, based on these other phenomena, like the mud was a heavenly food that didn't satiate the stomach. So let's now look at the brain as well. The brain, a, a, a thinking person, a, 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 an intellectual person, a person with a mind, with an active mind, Wants knowledge. 
but there's two types of knowledge. There is knowledge that once you get that knowledge, you feel full and satiated and it's satisfying. It's a different type of knowledge. There's a type of knowledge that the more you learn it and the more you study it, the hungrier you get, the more unsatisfied you get. But yet you learn it and you study it. What is what would be the difference? Well, just like man, there is man, which is bread from earth. Bread from earth should satisfy. Bread from heaven should not satisfy. As we spoke earlier, the characteristics of bread from heaven is that it doesn't satisfy. The same is also when it comes to a studying knowledge. There's two types of knowledge. The part, let's talk about Torah. Torah has these two, Torah is called bread. There's many verses that compare Torah to bread. So there is bread from the earth, which is a type of Torah that satisfies. And there's a type of Torah that doesn't satisfy. What's the difference? Briefly, there's a lot to speak about it, but briefly. The part of the Torah that deals with the, the world, which is the more external part of the Torah, we call it the law of the Torah. For example, you study Talmud, you study you know, Jewish law. It's brilliant. There's so much back and forth. There's such deep analytical discussions in the Talmud. It's, it's mind-blowing. Yet, it's after all said and done, it's talking about worldly things, which are things that when you study about them, you can really know them. I'm studying a certain matter of law, whether the person owes the guy the money or he doesn't owe the money. And there's a back and forth debate in this scenario. What do you do? The subject matter is something that is so concrete and so tangible that I can know it. And once this piece of information enters my mind, my mind calms down and I feel happy. I know the subject. I I really, really have it. Have it down pat. You study whatever subject of things that are more tangible. When you study the esoteric elements of the Torah, like we, we do in our classes over here, the more mystical abstract elements, since the subject matter is the divine, is the godly, the godly, the spiritual or the mystical, what we call panimi Torah, the Hasidut, the Kabbalistic and Hasidus, especially Hasidus, which is dealing with literally studying about, about Hashem, about God himself. Even when we gain insight and we gain information, we're knowing, we know its existence. This is the term that it's explained. We know its existence, but we don't know its substance. The substance of God you can never know. Because as long as we are creations and limited finite entities, we don't know the substance of the divine. When the soul leaves the body and the soul goes up into a spiritual abstract world over there it can experience the substance of the divine and that's why it says for instance when a, when a soul goes up to heaven it then appreciates everything it studied down here because then it goes ah i really get it like it's not that we didn't understand it here but we understood it but we only understood you know the 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 science of it but not what it is, because we, we don't have the sensors and the ways to be able to actual sense and appreciate the true divine, the substance of it. Or another time it's going to be revealed, 
after Mashiach is totally here and the temple is already built, there's going to be such an explosion excuse me, of godly presence in the world, of godly revelation, that we're going to be able to touch the divine and know Hashem intimately. Until that time, whenever we're studying about spiritual aspects, whenever we're studying the esoteric elements of Torah, we know it's outside, we know its dimensions, but we don't know it. As a result of that, it's not satisfactory. It's bread from heaven. It's the divine Torah. It's a higher Torah. It leaves us hungry. Just like we said earlier, when you can't see what you're eating, even if you have a taste of it, but you can't see it, 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 in other words, in, in terms of study, it would mean it leaves you more curious than when you started. So what happens is it's, it's basically it, it teases. It's teasing. That's all that it does. It teases you because you're learning something. You know it's phenomenal. You know it's mind-blowing. You know this is information you've been looking for all your life. But yet you feel like after the class, you're left with more questions than before the class. You feel like you have it, but you don't have it. It's higher than you. It's bigger than you. You can't, you're not, you're not really, I'm sensing something. I sense it in my soul. I feel it somewhere. I know it, but I don't know it. It's transcendent. It's it's transcending. That's the mun element in study and learning. But here is the catch. Here is the catch. Still goes back to what we spoke about when it comes to the food. How to be full from something that is unfulling. Since we are not a vessel, since we are not a container, since we are not wide enough to fully integrate divinity, divine, because we're creations of time and space, and God is infinite beyond time and space. So the study of the divine will always be aloof. And if it's aloof, it will always leave us unquenched and unsatisfied, unless... This is the secret to the entire class. Unless we dissolve out of our humanity, unless we become so nullified to a higher existence that we cease to be who we are and we melt into the higher reality that is bigger than us. When we rise beyond the definitions and constrictions that make us and define us by our limitations and boundaries, because we sense, in other words, you're eating something that's bigger than you, so it's transcendence. So you're reaching for something higher, but it's blowing you because you know you can't have it, but you realize it's so true, it's so real, it causes you to become not. And when you become not, when you become not, then you become dissolved in it. Now your containers and your vessels have stretched 
limitless, in a limitless fashion. Because now you're no more the finite, limited human brain and human mind because you have integrated into something bigger than yourself. So you, you become a vessel. Here's, here's the catch to it. You become a vessel for what is really unvesselable, which is really you become a container for what is uncontainable. So let me put it this way. As long as we are holding on to being, to be, to a self, as long as my consciousness is a separate consciousness of me, and my beingness is my existence as a creature, as a being, as a limited entity of existing, whatever existence my, my, I am, my spiritual definitions and my physical definitions that make up my body, but even my spiritual definitions make up the character and definitions of the way I think, the way I know, the way I experience my emotions, my understanding, my, the, 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 the whole persona of self then God will always be an infinite beyond. And even if you touch him and you study him, this type of learning will always be unsatisfactory. It will create hunger and it will will make you hungrier and hungrier and hungrier and there will be a lack of satisfaction in the realm of knowledge because you can never know it. And because you can't know it, you can't eat it. Eating means... You're, you're eating it, you're, you're taking it in, you're absorbing it, but you're not absorbing it. You can't take in something that's infinite. So you're not absorbing it. So if you can't make it you, how about the opposite? You can dissolve yourself into it. When you dissolve yourself into it, that means you are willing to relinquish self. And I am willing to relinquish I. When we're willing to just just melt our consciousness into something bigger than us, then that's exactly what happens. Then Hashem picks you and integrates you into him. Then you become, now it doesn't mean, God forbid, we cease to exist. You become almost like an extension of the divine existence. And you might look at me like, you might say, this is crazy. This is, this is not the way it's meant. To, it is way it's meant to be. Because when God created the world, his intention was that he should get married to his creations. He should, you want to have a husband and wife, the two separate entities, yet they dissolve and become one flesh, one entity. God invites us in to partake in him. So now we can become a vessel. That's the key over here. Because you can't eat something. Eating means that you're taking it into your vessels. But to be a rigid being of self and become a vessel for the divine is impossible. But the moment we, what we call, this is the secret word, the moment one achieves the level called bittle, bittle means abnegation, bittle means re-identification. You don't identify yourself as self, but as just another expression of God's infinity. And then now your identity is just the being who you are is just him flowing through you, now you're already not limited. Now you can experience his truth in a way that it is satisfying. In a way that the most unsatisfying type of information is now the most satisfying. More than that, it's the only satisfaction. It's the only true satisfaction because you're experiencing what is truly infinite.
And that's real. Now you have everything. It's deep stuff. This is a deep, deep elevation. But the fact that the Rebbe is even talking about it. He says it's possible for us to achieve such a level of study, such a level of community, of knowledge of God. But it requires this bittle. It requires the 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 mun the mun eating, the higher. It's 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 you know, you know it requires us to, to to flip our mood from 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 being bread from earth to a whole different diet bread from heaven to eat bread now this so what comes out from all of this is as follows you can eat bread from earth that's the study of sciences and even studying of torah but studying of torah in a way that you're learning the torah as the torah is dealing with the the earthy realm or the material physical world that you can eat even as a limited being of time and space and be satisfied but it's not a true satisfaction because ultimately it's finite so it's not real satisfaction then you can study the divine but not relinquishing your ego not relinquishing yourself your definitions of self you want to fit god into you what that is going to cause is you're going to experience hunger and thirst the study itself is going to make you hungry and thirsty and it's going to be bread of affliction so it's going to leave you very uncomfortable not a bad thing but still uncomfortable and unsatisfied well you can take it to the next stage where this higher absolute higher knowledge stuns your soul you sense it you've studied it it's so beyond you but because of that it like kind of causes you to suspend yourself completely all all self becomes nullified in the awesomeness of what you're studying now you transcend self and as you transcend self you're now becoming a vessel for the infinite and when you become a vessel from the infinite you're satiated from unsatiatable food from bread from heaven and you're not hungry. That is the Yom Kippur experience as well. We showed it how it is in the man, in the spiritual experience of man. Now let's take a look at Yom Kippur, and then we're going to apply this to actual daily eating, daily living in a world that we are living in today. Let's see how this works. Now let's take it to Yom Kippur. We said earlier that Yom Kippur is an experience where it's non-food, but you are eating. What are you eating? You're eating your fast. <laughs> the non-eating is... So let, let, let's explain this. The non-eating of Yom Kippur is called an infliction. What's infliction? What is the definition of infliction? Definition of infliction is the opposite of pleasure. Pleasure is when you're comfortable and you're feeling pleased. The opposite of that when you're uncomfortable. The more uncomfortable you are, the more it hurts. Hurt, pain, and pleasure are opposites. Now, it, it's interesting. We said, you know, in order for a human being to be alive, for us to live, mostly it's food. That's resp- oxygen, of course, and food. Food. We, we all need food to live, right? Now, 
there's something about food that you got to wonder why God has done that. Why is it that food is pleasurable? The experience of eating is pleasurable. I mean, unless someone has kind of got a, you know, a horrific cook, but, you know, there's always some kind of pleasure that you get out of food. Food is a pleasurable experience. Is that just random that God wants to make sure we eat? So he made food be pleasurable? Or is that intrinsic to what food needs to do? Food is life-giving. Life is pleasurable. One of the highest powers of the soul, or not, not deeper than that, it's not a power of the soul. In, in Kabbalah, it says that you have the various different dimensions of experience. You have the, um, you know, behavior. Deeper than behavior is emotions that drive behavior. Deeper than emotions are the intellect, your mind, understanding. It's a higher level of life, higher level of energy. Deeper than that is willpower. Deeper than willpower in the soul is pleasure. Because where do you, what is a person, what drives our desires and wants? What our pleasure is. So pleasure, nothing. Pleasure is at the root essence of life. Life itself, if you peel away all the, all the expressions of life and you get the life itself, life is pleasurable. The reason why food is pleasurable, through food we are increasing life, and life is pleasurable, so that because there is li- and there is life in the food that we eat, so that's the sensation. That's why food is such a pleasurable experience. So very much part of what sustains a person is not just eating. It's we don't realize that is the pleasure we have when we eat food. It's the pleasure of a cup of coffee. It's like, ah, you feel so good. You drink your coffee in the morning. There's a certain amount of energy you're getting from the caffeine itself and the quenching of the, you know, you wake up in the morning, you're thirsty, whatever, you have a cup of coffee. But a lot of your coffee there, we spoke before about the sight, the pleasure that is taken in is giving you life. And then when you eat breakfast, and you sit down, and whatever the various different components that make up your breakfast, the pleasure in that experience is life-giving. So in a sense, God is sustaining us through pleasure. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. These are all expressions of pleasure. The pleasure that there is inside, you know, a salad, whether it's a mix of cucumbers, kale, I don't know what you're eating over there, tomatoes, a little salad dressing made up of, you know, a little vinegar, a little, a little, uh, a little, little bit of this, a little bit of garlic, a little bit. And that creates, the combination creates a sensation. That's not the essence of life and the essence of pleasure. It's the expression of life that it's a, which, which is, again is inherently pleasurable little tidbits of pleasure that God put into the various different foods. The sweetness, the, 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 the sharpness, and all these various different combinations, it's like, it's like little crumbs of life, little crumbs of pleasure. How about life itself, naked life, not expressed in anything, not not defined and already specified, but the pure 
pure fountainhead of life, life itself, the fountainhead of pleasure, before it takes on a particular coloring and definition, that's the essence of pleasure. If we would touch that and, and, and feel that, would we feel pleasure? No. We would argue that should be the most pleasurable. No. Because it's the essence of something. The essence of something is not the experience of something. The experience of something is always external to the essence. I'll give you an example of that. Fire is bright and hot. Very hot and bright. What's the essence of fire? In, in the, the mystics, the Kabbalists, the, the ancient philosophers talk about the essence of fire. The essence of fire, again, I'm not a scientist to tell you, but let's say the fire that exists within a flintstone. If you, you know, bang it, a fire, a spark will come out, the fire will come out. Is that fire hot? Is that fire um, bright? No. Although it's the source of the revealed fire. And the revealed fire is bright and hot. But the essence of it, it's the essence. It's not the experience of it. It is it. It's too deep. It's too abstract for it to be bright, for it to be, for it to be hot, for it to be any color. It's the essence of it. So usually when we get, the same as with pleasure, the pleasures that we are touching and therefore being enlivened by are little tidbits of pleasure, little raindrops of pleasure. But the very, very ocean of pleasure itself, untouchable. So all year long, we are sustained by what? By pieces of pleasure. By the, we, we get life, which life is pleasurable through through a tomato, through a cucumber, through a piece of chicken, through a, through a, we said, the, through a little lasagna, through a pancake, through a cookie, through a, through a coffee, through the, these are all, all this is life enhancing and pleasure enhancing, stimulating pleasure, keeping us alive, literally giving life to the human experience. But there are pieces of it. Yom Kippur is where God allows us to touch the essence of pleasure. But that's not through eating. God says, dismiss the external comment. I want you to connect and plug into me myself, where I am the essence of pleasure and essence. The essence of it, not the expression of it. Now, essence, I can't live off that. I can't touch that. It's too deep, it's too abstract, it's too undefinable. I can't, you can't, again, if something is not revealable, so to what good is it? Okay, it's the essence of it's the essence of pleasure, but I can't live off the essence of pleasure because it's too deep, it's too beyond me. Ah, that goes back to the point we said earlier. As long as I am me defined by the definitions of me, so then I'm a little piece of existence, so I need a little piece of life. I'm using coarse language over here to try to give it a little bit more tangibility. I need a little piece of life to go into my limited existence to give me pleasure and delight and so on and so forth. 
just like we said earlier, in order for a person to understand and comprehend something, give me a little piece of information. Give me something that my mind can chew on. Give me something I can break down. Give me something tangible. I know what it is. Don't teach me a teaching of such abstraction, like even today's class. It's such deep abstraction. So why are we learning that this is too deep? This is too high. This is too abstract. I can't relate to it. The answer is lift yourself up out of the limitations of your being. Go outside of definitions of, of surrender a little bit your mind. Surrender ourselves to something higher, God is saying. Go past the definitions that define the self and enter into my zone. Now, all year long, we can't do that. In terms of food, our bodies cannot, our soul can do that in terms of these journeys of study, which we can treat our soul to knowledge that is unknowable and yet we can be satisfied from it. Through, as we spoke earlier, you can lift yourself up to a place that you become a vessel for the unvesselable. You become a container for the uncontainable. But our bodies can't do that. Our bodies are stuck in time and space. But not on Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur, God says, it's so special. I'm drawing you so close to me. And now you cease to exist as a human body of time and space. You're becoming just a physical extension of my infinite presence. And now you're me. You're not you anymore. And once your body is me, then you can be literally, you can tap, know, experience, and get pleasure from the source of pleasure, even before it gets broken down into tiny raindrops. And you know what it is? It's not that you feel pleasure. It's not like anybody sits your kipper in shul and you're sizzling with pleasure. Imagine that you're frying with pleasure. You're experiencing like this most intense experience of pleasure. Not it. You won't experience it. It's a non-conscious, it's like a non it's beyond experience. You're entering into a state of essence. You're being absorbed in that state. You're being enlivened in Kabbalah, in, 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 in Hasidism, it's referred to as Bilti Morgesh. It's a Tainuk Bilti Morgesh. It's pleasure that can't be felt. It's beyond feeling, but it's very real. You're tapping it, you're there, and therefore you're being sustained by it. You're not feeling, because feeling already is already going into the narrow definitions of where you can feel something. You've exited feeling. You're beyond feeling and sensation. You're living in the essence. You're plugged into the essence. And you're alive at that level. Our bodies drop a million drops back into the physical world. You're enlivened through the hunger itself which now takes us to the experience of the man in, in terms of man as a regular, remember we said before, man is the same like Yom Kippur, infliction. Takes us back to a more, let's talk a little bit more grounded. We said earlier or in the beginning of the class that, you know, a person needs to feel secure, some level of security. I need to know that at least tomorrow I have at least tonight I have dinner. Someone once mentioned to me an interesting thing. Someone told me that his father would always tell him the difference between a calm society, a world that we have today, you know, everything working normally, everything, a world, a civilized society, and an utterly chaotic world is only three meals. Very, very frightening thought, three meals. That means if suddenly 
no one has breakfast and no one has dinner and no one has tomorrow's breakfast. Three, literally, the food disappeared. What's going to happen? What's going to happen on the street? The riots, the mobs will come out like crazy. People will lose. All civilization will collapse. Because yeah, I don't want to eat. I don't want to eat. I'm hungry. I don't know where's food coming from. People go nuts. Scary, right? The human need for security. I need to have. I need to have my basket. And in my basket, I need to have my food. What we said earlier, when I don't see my food, if I don't see it, if I can't define it, I'm left hungry. So if I don't have security and I don't see the food that I'm eating, I'm left feeling, uh, I'm starving. I'm starving. I'm dying. I don't have life. True. As long as what? As long as you are you and you're a finite, limited, defined existence with a finite little basket on your head, and if that basket is full, you feel good. If that basket is not full, you're not, you're not feeling But how about when we transcend that and we put ourselves into a state that, that we feel God to such a powerful level that we realize that all is him and we cease to be us as separate entities other than God. Then what's happening is I can bring myself to a point where I don't have lunch. It's a half an hour before lunch. I have no idea where lunch is coming from. My basket is empty. I don't know where it's coming. Am I concerned? Am I worried? Am I scared? Do I feel hungry? Do I feel insecure? Do I feel lost? I'm plugged into the infinite source of life. The infinite source that sustains and gives life to gazillions of creatures every second. I didn't give a class last week. I I went away a little bit. I actually went to a rainforest. And I spent disconnected. I had no Wi-Fi. It was was the most beautiful experience. And I literally was like, like in a jungle. It was a jungle. And I sat disconnected from everything. And I was wondering, I was looking at myself at, the, at, the, at, the, at this rainforest that I was in. And all you can hear in the morning is just billions, literally, you hear the sound of millions of invisible creatures. It's amazing what you could see, like this kind of, you know, this kind of animal, this kind of thing. And wherever you look, there's another, here's a toad and here's a frog and here's an iguana and here's a, this and here there's a butterfly, this kind of thing. And there's like millions of creatures. There was, but how much did I see? You know, insects, birds, unique birds in a tropical environment. Amazing. But I'm thinking to myself, in this, in a square mile where I was, there's a few, there must have been habitats, there must have been at least a few million creatures. Who is feeding every single one of those creatures, taking care of every single one of them? And you just hear the sound, the buzz of nature. Just the buzz of nature. Who's feeding every single butterfly, every single caterpillar, every single little spider, every single little ant. I watched ants carrying these leaves, the tiny little ants, they each one carrying their leaves. Now they're going and they're marching. But who's preparing the leaves for every single one of them, for every single bat, for every single bird, for every single raven, for every single 
uh, 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 what was it that I saw? Uh, 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 osprey or, 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 or every single one of them. Who's feeding every single creature? One being is out. He's providing every single one. Hazanesa'ulamkulay, God sustains the entire world. Every single creature. Every single creature over there is going to have its food. God is sustaining every single one. Meticulously. And you wonder, each one of those bugs, either it is going to have lunch or it's going to be, for whatever reason, God is part of the food system, that bug is going to become someone else's lunch. But whatever it is, everything is being taken care of. And I have to worry about how I'm going to, I need to have stored away life flow. What? Like billions of creatures. And I was only watching a small little tiny area within, within the ginormous planet. All being sustained. If I'm rigid in my own existence, in my own being, I need to have at least three meals. But if I'm not rigid, if I melt into this greater energy of life, and I become part of this infinite, greater, majestic beauty of God, and especially that God says to us, come in, become part of it. Trust in me. Rel- relinquish yourself to me. So let me tell you the secret. Tell you two stories of, of the great Hasidic masters. And this becomes the actual lesson for each and every one of us. How to deal with all this economic turmoil, recession, melt, who knows what. Just, just remember these two stories. It was a great saintly Hasidic master. His name was Rabbi Nachem Mendel of Rimenov. He's the one who's very, very much associated with man, man. He lived 250 years, 200 years ago, 250 years ago. A great holy man. But he would, his favorite portion of the Torah was the portion of man, the story of man. And he lived it to the extreme. The story of man means to live with complete bitach, complete security, complete, to lean completely on God. To completely rely. So I want to tell you something about these great Hasidic masters. They had a custom. Many of these giants. They wouldn't go to sleep at night if there was still a penny in their possession. Money to them was an instrument to serve God. Any money that came their way. They used to have many people coming to meet them, come to seek their advice. And it was a custom that when you came to the rabbi, to these great saintly people who were, who were blessed with a great presence of the divine dwelling upon them, and you'd come to seek their blessing, it was always a custom to leave a couple of dollars, a couple of them, it wasn't dollars, then it was ruble or whatever. And that's how these rabbis would have. They would be able to feed their families and take care of them. But many of them, even though quite a lot of cash would come in every day, they had a custom. They would not go to sleep at night if there was one Red scent in their possession. That means their wives would take whatever money, buy the groceries, whatever they needed. And the rest of the cash was distributed to charity. Some of them felt it, were so sensitive that they would go to sleep at night 
and they wouldn't instruct, you know, that all the rest of the money should be giving to the poor. There shouldn't be a cent left over. That tomorrow I'm waking up and I know that there is the cash register is empty. There is not a dollar, nothing. Where's the and what happens if no one shows up? What happens if a major store comes tomorrow and no people come to the rabbi? No one is bringing any money. Well, God is going to feed. They're not relying on the people coming, not because they know people are coming. They have no idea. Who cares? I'm in God's hands. Obviously, these were saintly people. They lived that way. And the way as I mentioned, there was some that were so sensitive that if they would go to, they would go put their heads down on their pillow after intense service of God. They can sense subconsciously if there was a dollar bill somewhere. Sometimes they would wake up and they would tell their attendants, whoever was there, search the house. There is a dollar somewhere. There was still a and they would look and find that there was real money. And then until they didn't find a beggar, a poor person to give the money to, they couldn't go to sleep. And only then they would go, why? Because to them, they were all, you see, total opposite of a normal person. Normal people, if you have money in your retirement fund, if you have some money in your bank, your bank account is not completely empty, you have some cash in your wallet, now I can sleep at night. But if there's nothing there, I'm so anxious. To these people, it's the exact opposite. If I have money, that means I'm, I'm, I'm living in my small little basket. I'm living in my small, that means it's so uncomfortable. They felt so claustrophobic. If there is no money, and they're just completely plugged into God, they felt so comfortable. I'll give you, before I tell you the story, perfect, you know, you, you, we can touch this. A little baby, two months old, where does the baby get its sustenance? Mom comes, picks up the baby, takes the baby with a deep love and hug, puts the baby to a mother's breast, and the baby suckles from the breast, nurses from the breast. The mother gives the baby milk. The baby has stress, the baby worry, the baby concerned. A baby knows. Um, if they're hungry, they let you know they're hungry, they cry, I'm hungry. Mom comes, picks the baby up, and nurses the baby. Imagine going to a baby and saying, you know, I can imagine how stressful it is because you have no idea. Like, you know what? I'm going to be putting over here in the side of your crib a bunch of bottles with, 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 with money, with, 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 with milk, so that you should have enough, enough for a whole week. I don't know. Mom comes up. Are you doing a favor for the baby? Is the baby happier or just get this? What do you have all these bottles on my crib? me alone. A baby doesn't want to know of bottles. A baby doesn't want to hoard. It's, it wants its mom. The mom is going to nurse me with love. Do we all feel like a little baby in God's hands where God nurses us every day? Is the baby lacking? Is the baby still psychological, like immature? No. God wants us in that state. And the people that Sadiqim, the righteous people of the past, live like this. And quite on the contrary. When you fill their basket with their limited basket with, with, with rolls and sandwiches, they don't like it. That is such a disturbance. That is such a, 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 a hindrance to their calmness because they don't live for themselves. If you're living separate and disconnected, then you are who you are, defined by your boundaries. And the truth is, a couple of sandwiches you have in your basket, which let's use modern terms, your retirement funds and your and your and your uh, stocks and your thing. It's what you think you have. You don't even have that. Who has anything? Who has anything? 
everything could become worthless, worthless in a split second. People think they have. It's a false security. But to be a little baby and know your mom will nurse you whenever you need. And any moment you want, you can say, mom, I'm hungry. And mom comes and provides. So let me tell you the story of these two tzaddikim who taught us how to live. One of them was Rebis Ramanacha Mendel of Rimanov, as he mentioned. He always teaches about the man. It's his favorite topic. And about this idea of being feeling completely, relinquishing yourself completely to God's hands. So when he was very poor, he wasn't yet a great, famous Hasidic Rebbe. He would travel to his Rebbe, the Rebbe Lamelech of Lazensk, one of the great Hasidic masters, the greatest of the great. He was one of the Rebbe Lamelech of Lazensk is one of these people who wouldn't go to sleep at night if there was a dollar a coin in his possession. Anyways, um, this Rabbi Nachman Mendel of Rimenov was a pauper. And he traveled to his Rebbe. He lived in a different town. He lived in Prist. Um, it was called Pristik. It's a certain town in Poland. And his Rebbe lived in Lazensk. And he used to make his way. He didn't even have money to pay for a wagon. He would, but in general, Hasidim loved they felt that when they go to a Rebbe, they should walk. They didn't want to go by any means of transportation. They wanted to have the mitzvah of walking with their feet. But he was so poor, even if he wanted a ride, he wouldn't have. Anyways, he's walking on walking days. His family is poor like anything. And he's suddenly on the floor, as he's getting closer to the Rebbe's, he's a gold coin. You know, he's hungry. And a gold coin on the middle of the road, halakhically, you can pick it up and it's yours. You don't have to give it back. It doesn't have a, a sign. A coin doesn't have it. If it has a sign, if it's in a wallet, you can figure out whose wallet it is. But if it's just a plain coin, cash. So he was ready to bend down and pick it up. And then his thought occurred to him. And the thought was, if God really, if that coin was really my coin, why do I have to bend down and pick up that coin? Then God would give it to me. Because if it was really mine, Hashem is one who's providing, so he would give it to me. Now, I'm not saying that. I want to make a very important thing. God always worked with us in accordance to our reliance on him. So for people that are generally living in stress, you're actually obligated to do something in order to make a living. But once a person raises their consciousness to such levels of connection to God, and don't forget about God for a second, like these tzaddikim, then for these people... Doing things to make their financial situation better and so is considered actually not a, a good thing. So he remembered, he thought to himself right away, if this coin would really, then why do, why do, I, why do I have to go bend down? That was his thought. Then God would give it to me and he left. Now imagine what that is. For him, it's like imagine like, you know, you haven't had done any business for a while. And now you only have a deal that lands on you for $10,000. Bills are piling up. You can't, you didn't pay your rent two months. The landlord's threatening you. You haven't done um, whatever. Your bill, you, you know, there's, there's, there's anxiety. Your wife is saying, you know, we, are, we need food. We need to, you have now $10,000. And this was this coin, this is what this coin meant to him. But his natural thing was that, you know, God is responsible to sustain me. So he didn't take it. And he continued on and he went to the Rebbe, Rebbe Rebbeilach, and he didn't even ask the Rebbe for, he, he gave him a note. He was so excited to watch his Rebbe's radiance. 
and he and he received, you know, his Rebbe gave him Shalom Aleichem, whatever, greeted him, and then he left, and he went into the shul, the study hall, and he started learning, and he was deep engrossed in his Torah study, and he was so excited as he was deeply invested in his learning. Suddenly, the door opens up, and a and a wealthy person comes running in, and he brings a gold coin to him, and he says to him as well. He says, you know, I was on my way here, also coming to greet the Rebbe. And on the way, I saw a gold coin glittering on the floor. So I stopped my wagon, I picked it up, and I was thinking to myself, I don't need it. Thank God I have enough food, I'm, my family, I'm financially stable, I'm good. So why did God give this coin to me? Probably that this coin, that I can do the mitzvah of charity. I can give it to a poor person who needs it. So I picked it up with the intention to find someone worthy of it, that God would get on, I'm going to give it to as I walked into the synagogue over here, into the Rebbe's place, I saw you. So when I saw you, I figured you're the one that is intended to. See, here's the coin. <laughs> so that's exactly what he said. He said, if if this coin was mine, God is going to deliver it to me. I need to go bending down into the mud and pick it up. Hashem gave it to him. And that's what happened. He got the coin. But he knew that it was going to come to him when Hashem is giving it to him. And there was no anxiety. That's the point. There's no stress. And here's a second story. Rebzusha of Anapali. Okay. This Rabbi Nacha Mendel of Rimen, of his Rebbe was Rabbi Lamelech of Lezenz. That's the, that's, it was his master. Rabbi Lamelech of Lezenz had a brother called Rebzusha. Lamelech and Rebzusha, two brothers. These are like legendary. How holy these and great saintly Hasidic masters. They lived all these teachings that we teach. They are the epitome of the example of being one with the divine. Literally not completely unified, channels through God. Rebbe, Rebbe Zisha of Anapoli was poor, poor, poor all his life. Now, to him, calling God and asking God for a tea was easier and felt more, more accessible than, than asking anybody in his house for a tea. Because to him, he felt closer to God than to anything else. So again, he's already an elderly person. He has a family. You know, if he says, oh, can you please make me a tea to his children, to his attendant? Okay, I'm, I'm thirsty. I need to drink something. The attendant would go, put a, take a little tea bag, put it in and give him tea, right? So it's the, the natural thing is to turn, but not to him. To him, imagine if, 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 if I need to catch up, okay? And, and you're sitting right across the table over here. And then there's someone else sitting, you know, at the end of the table. And the ketchup is right next to where you're sitting. When I call and say, hey, to the person down on the other room or at the other end, please get up and give me this ketchup bottle. Or when I ask it from the closest person, you're here, can you please pass down the ketchup? I would ask it to the closest person. To Reb Zisha, Reb Zisha of Anapoli, the closest entity to ask for ketchup was to God. Because to him, God is a reality that was literally there every 24-7. Reb Zisha used to wake up in the morning and he used to spend hours and hours in deep meditative prayer. He was a, he was a great saintly person. By the time he was finished praying his morning prayers, it was 12, 1 o'clock, maybe 2 o'clock in the afternoon. An average person is hungry. He would also be hungry. What would he do? He would say as follows. This was his daily routine. He would say as follows. Oh, he would say, God, he would say, the master of the world, he would say, him, or Father in heaven. He would say, you sustain from the little eggs of the tiny little lice 
it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a passage in the Talmud. The Talmud says that God, when the Talmud wants to say how God feeds the entire world, they say that God feeds even the eggs of lice. How big are lice? Tiny little creatures. The egg of a lice itself. And God sustains the egg. And God also sustains the most biggest creatures, they say, the horns of the Re'emim. Re'emim, let's say, are rhinos or, or like the biggest elephant, not elephant, something like a massive creature. So Reb Zisha would say, using the Talmudic verse, he say, Father in heaven, you sustain, you're the one who sustains, similar to what I did, I was telling you about the jungle. You sustain the tiniest little, you know, the creatures, you can't even see them with the naked, with the eye. To the most humongous creatures, you give them all their food. Zusha, he would say, Zusha needs to eat. Zusha is hungry. He would say about himself. He used to call it, speak about himself in with third party, which means he would, he would call himself by name. He would say, Zusha is hungry. Zusha, Zusha needs to eat. Please give Zusha to eat. That's what he would say. Now, the way it would work is, his family knew he was a very holy person. And he had also many followers. And they, they would, they knew that Zusha would never ask, that he would never ask anybody for food. He would never ask someone for breakfast. I'm ready for breakfast. He would never, he would never say anything. But they knew he would ask for God, from God. But they never knew when he would finish his prayers because every day was different. Some days was longer and shorter. When to prepare breakfast for him. So they would have someone in the back of the room sitting there. And when he would hear Reb Zusha say, God, Zusha is hungry, time for breakfast. He would go into the other room and, you know, the food was already prepared and he would bring it in and he would give him a little, you know, I don't know what he added there, a little piece of herring, a little, a little, a little, a little bread, a little drink, a little water, a little whatever. That was his, his food, his breakfast. He would do this every day. One time, he had to go out of town. This attendant that was always in charge of listening in to where Zusha would say to God, I'm hungry. One time he went out of town. And also Reb Zusha's wife, the Rebbitzin, also was out of town. So no one was there to really take care of him. There were other family members, but he was afraid that if he would ask one of the family members to be in charge, they're busy with other stuff. Everybody's busy doing other stuff, you know. And they're distracted. Maybe they won't be tentative. So he decided to hire someone. He paid, and this guy was a very, very meticulous. You knew it as a person, a very meticulous person. And this person, would st- he should sit there for the two days that he's out of town, two, three days, and he should provide and make sure that the moment Reb Zusha says, I'm hungry, and he tells God, I'm hungry, he should, he should bring him his breakfast. Okay. <laughs> so this guy, however, he promised he was going to do it. But when he heard when he's supposed to bring the food, he didn't like it. He said, what kind of business is this? He's asking God for the food, and then his, 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 his attendant, his, you know, his, his, his homekeeper is the one bringing him the food. That's playing games. I really want to see if God is really going to take care of me. Let's see if God is really, if, if he talks to God, let God provide. What am I bringing in the food? He decided that he's going to he's gonna check this out. He decided he's not going to give him his breakfast. He prepared the breakfast. I am not going to bring him in the food until he will stop with his cuckoo-ness. And instead of talking to God, I want him to turn to me and say, give me breakfast. Can you please bring me my food? And I don't care if he's going to sit there for 24 hours calling out to God, give me my food, give me my food. I'm not going to give it to him. I'm waiting till he asks it from me because I'm going to provide. This is what he decided. Good. And he's waiting. What happened that day? Here's the story. It's an amazing story. Zusha 
woke up that day early morning. He would wake up at three o'clock in the morning, early morning before dawn. And he would go, you know, to the mikvah. The great people, it's many people, is that you, you dip in, you know, in a body of water every day as a preparation for prayer, as a purification. He would, in this town, Anapoli, where he lived, there was a cold, freezing outdoor, you know, a place, uh, a, a little well, a, a spring, and he would dip there, freezing cold. And Zusha was in, in the streets there in the middle of the winter, it was muddy and rain season, full of gook and mud. And Zusha used to walk. Who was up there at that time? No one else. Everybody's sleeping. He used to walk through the town. He used to go to the place, go to the mikvah, then he would start preparing for prayer and so forth. There happened to be that day a wealthy person a day before who was passing by and it, it, was a, it was a lot of rain, so the guy couldn't make it. The guy couldn't make it uh, to his destination, so he decided to call it quits and go into a local hotel for the night, a local inn. And a wealthy guy came there in the morning because of his businesses. He had major business stuff on his head. Um, he, he couldn't sleep too well. He woke up also at 3 in the morning. And he decided that, you know what? Let me get a head start. I'm going to go to the local synagogue, the local shul. I'll pray. I'll get done prayer early. And I'll be able to, you know, leave to my businesses at 5, 6 in the morning. I'm already out. All right. Um, you know, as soon as prayers were over, I don't know what time, day, 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 day. Let's say daytime was, it became day at, at, at 5.30. So by the time, 7 o'clock in the morning, he's got free. He can leave already. This was his decision. Anyways, he's walking in the early, you know, four o'clock in the morning. He's walking through the streets of Anapali. And he's, being, he's, a, he's a wealthy man. And he, he has very nice clothing. And there was a lot of mud there. So he was very, it was hard to see. And it was dark. And he's being, he can't stand that his feet are stepping in the mud. He's very careful. Now, there were planks of wood. Wherever there was ditches, there was a lot of plank of wood. People could walk on the wood. Where it was very murky and muddy. So he's walking on this plank. And suddenly, and being so careful that, he, that none of the mud should get onto his boots or onto his pants or whatever. And as he's walking, he sees another person walking across him. And they're meeting on the plank. And the problem is that the plank only has, you know, it wasn't a two-way road. It was only a one-way road. So now this wealthy man is walking. You know, a wealthy person is full of himself. And, and who does he see coming against him? This pauper. You know, this should dress like a poor man. He was like a real, looked like a real, you know, like a, a street person. And he sees, you know, this guy, you know, torn looking at. So he, 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 this rich man, not wanting to like getting himself dirty, goes and pushes the poor person, gives a push, and he shoves him into the mud. And Absusha falls, right splash into the mud. And fine, and the rich man continues on. And he not only didn't he feel bad that he pushed this this this, this poor man down into the mud, he felt he, it, it gave him a thrill. Like, ah, you like, what are you doing over here, you pauper? Get off the road, like you dirty whatever. That was his feeling, full of arrogance of self. He continues, and he goes to synagogue to pray. He's a holy guy too. He's a religious person. He's got to pray. Meanwhile, he threw this poor man into the mud. Okay, he goes and he prays, and after prayer, he comes back to the inn. And as he's eating there, his nice breakfast, you know, he got, you know, well, you know, it was, it was, a, it was a better breakfast and the host is feeding him and he has a nice coarse meal. But, uh, 
And he, so he starts laughing. And the guy says, what are you laughing? He says, oh, you should have seen today. He says, that lousy beggar. He says, I was walking here in the morning. And there was this lousy. And I, and I walked on a plank. He said, there was no place to walk. It's such a run-down, you know, hickory, hick, no, hickory, uh, hick town over here. That, that, that your streets are so bad that I was on this plank. And you should have seen. I tossed that beggar onto the floor. Into the mud, there was a splash. And, I, and he was laughing about it. But the guy's thinking to himself, he says, who's walking through four o'clock? What time is it? Four in the morning? Who's, no one walks. I know everybody in town. And then he says, huh, you know, be the only person who is walking. He says, that's the great Rebzusha. That's the great Sadiq. He's the renowned. He says, what? He says, yeah. He's the only person who would be walking. He says, yeah, but he didn't look like some... He, the way he was dressed and then it was, was dark outside. I looked at him. He looked like just a poor, you know destitute beggar he says no 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 that's exactly him he you know he's simple and he's uh, he doesn't have much and that's what he looks like so the guy got so frightened he realized he he messed with a godly person he didn't just you know it's one thing you should you know just to, to not you know you should have the dignity not to not to not to mistreat any person but in this case this was someone who was known to be a miracle worker someone who was known to be in a really godly man he mistreated him like that he felt so horrible suddenly he started coughing and he literally threw up the food that he was eating and he was so he got so disgusted with himself and he was shaking he started crying he said how will i ever gain forgiveness like i did the most horrible thing. How can I, I just move him into the mud? Like, what's with me? Like, he felt terrible. What should I do? What should I do? How will I ever be forgiven? So the man said to him, you know what? I'm not so worried. He says, Abzusha is the most humble person in the world. Go ask him for forgiveness. Go, and he felt sure. He said, he fell into the mud. He fell into the mud. He wiped himself off. He changed his pants and went further. There's no, it's no big deal. Go ask him for forgiveness. He'll forgive you. He says, how do I ask him? He says, wait. Go after his dominant. And he usually prays till 12. He says, I'm supposed to leave. He says, no, but if you want forgiveness, wait. He says, okay, I'll wait till 12, 1 o'clock. He says, but you know what you should do? You know, to show him some courtesy, to peer him a nice tray of food. You know, some you know, cakes, cookies, whatever you have, a little bit of, a little schnapps. A little, uh, a little bit of some protein, some food, some fish. Some just make him a nice salad. Make him a nice dish, and take it to him. And you'll see when he's all right. So he's excited to do so. He waited the extra few hours. He prepared himself, and he was hoping and praying that Rabzusha will forgive him. He comes in exactly when Rabzusha is finishing his prayers, and Rabzusha says, calls out to God, and he says, God. You will sustain from the biggest, from the from the eggs of the lice. Zusha is hungry. Can you please feed Zusha? This other fellow was standing over there who can't wait until he's gonna wait and let get God's not get the food. And at that moment, this wealthy guy walks in and he and he hears and he says and he hears Zusha saying Zusha's hungry. <laughs> he runs into the room, puts the Platter out right in front of him. And Abzusha, okay, see, raises our God that's provided. And he sits down and he washes and he says the blessing and he, he, he satiates his hungry body. And after he finishes, he makes a blessing. This guy 
falls to the floor and he says, Zushi says, please forgive me. Zushi, your holy master, holy tzaddik, I'm so sorry. He says, what? He says, I was the one who pushed you today. I didn't know who you were. I didn't know, in general, I shouldn't treat people this way. I can't believe I'm so arrogant. I'm so disgusting. I'm so despicable. Please forgive me. Please find it in your heart to forgive me. Holy Rebbe, I have to know who you are. Arab Zushi, of course, forgave him and so on and so forth. This guy got a lesson on his life. When Reb Zusha turns to God and says, I'm hungry, God will provide. That's the secret of what we're talking about in today's class. No, God says this week's notorious. See, I am giving before you today the blessing. Today. If we can only live a little bit higher. If we can only recognize that God doesn't want us to hoard. Hashem doesn't want us to fill out. Hashem, yes, in the time of exile, the time when God is distanced from the world, that's when the world and the laws of nature and the systems are put into place. But even then, we can choose. This is what the Rebbe says in the Mimer. We can choose if we want to be of those who are living and we're being sustained through the systems or we're being sustained, nursed by God himself. To be on a higher level. To be in a place where we know that we're plugging into the infinite source. And on that level, as the Rebbe says, you mentioned to you earlier, when we are eating man, that's why we make the blessing. I'm going back to the questions I asked. When we are eating man, today's days, we can also tap the man. Because it depends if we want to live on a system of bread from the earth or bread from heaven. Bread from heaven means you're a baby being nursed by God. Now, it can be in a manner in which it causes you anxiety. You choose. You can be eating mun and be hungry because you can't taste it, because you can't. Now, let's let me go back to the mun a minute. Why did the mun? Why did the mun from heaven not last for two days? Why did you need the mun? Why did the mun come daily? Why did, and the other question, why was the mun um, colorless? And the answer is back to the back to the what we were saying earlier. Man is not part of creation. Man is divine. It's above time and space. It's like eating godliness itself. God is feeding you with Himself. His God's milk. God is nursing us with He with divinity, with pure divine. So, number one, because it's not part of the system, it's not part of the world. It doesn't, it can't exist within time and space unless it's regenerated continuously into time and space. That's why every day God had to create it into this world. That's it. It couldn't last. It never became part of time. So the quality of it is what would make it be bread of infliction. Why is it bread of infliction? We said earlier, because you don't have your cabinet stored. You don't have lunch for tomorrow. You don't have lunch for next week. But that's exactly the quality of it that you're plugging into to, to being fed directly by God. The infinite, the boundless. Why does man, on the one hand, have every taste, but on the one hand, wasn't even, as we said earlier, wasn't even a food. It's not like, it, we said man is like non, a non-food. Because the reason it has every taste it's because it's the source of all tastes. It's the essence of pleasure itself. 
from where all tastes come from. So it has every taste. Every other food has a limited, already expressed raindrop of pleasure in it. In one type of food, it comes in a sweet taste, the other one in a tarty taste, the, uh, in a tart taste, sorry, the other one in a, in a sour taste, the other one in a sharp taste, the other one in a tangy taste, every single different taste. Because it's limited, it's all defined, it's all specified, it's all part of existence. One is not part of existence. So, if you are a defined being, a if we exist as a defined, limited entity, then we would much rather have definitive, defined, limited food. And we want to, what the sages say, and in the in, in 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 the in the world in general, a full a a a a uh, the, the sages say that a, you know an, a a empty vessel can hold a full vessel can't hold. What does that mean? A full vessel means someone who has a basket and they're filling it. So. It's not, it's, it's not a container for, for, for the divine blessing. An empty vessel. An empty vessel means you have nothing. I have nothing. I'm plugging into to Hashem. That could contain. What could it contain? It could contain the infinite blessing. So the first blessing of the Birkat which is on the man, that's the blessing that we say you will eat and you will be satiated. It's a whole different level of satiation. It's an infinite satiation. It's being able to be satiated from pure faith and pure trust. And you're never lacking anything. So I don't care, and we shouldn't care about turbulent times. We shouldn't care about what economists and what all these... It's not that it's not true. It could be true from today till tomorrow. It's not real truth. Being that whenever turmoil the world might go through as Mashiach reveals himself in the world, for each and every one of us, I'm going right back to the beginning of the class, for each and every one of us, it should not in any way create the least bit of anxiety or stress. Because it's within our hands of each and every one of us to be completely ani ladoti. I am to my beloved. I'm to beloved means my life is about you, God. And if my life is about you, then I am you. And if I am you, then it's your business to be alive, not me. That's the point. If I'm living for me, then I got to be worried. But if, I'm, if my life is not about me, it's about serving you, God. I become part of, I'm on your payroll. I'm part of you. It's your business. It's your responsibility. I'm in good shape. And if I find that I'm not worthy, so that I can become worthy. That every second make yourself worthy. No one is ever worthy, but you try your best. Out of joy, out of happiness. Drop the worry, drop the concern. Be the little baby and be nursed. Have true, infinite source. Then we become vessels and containers and we become full. In other words, we don't have anxiety by being on. I once gave a class about this idea of living on, living that God is holding you. Certain people, God says, you have to be on a leash. I'm holding you next to me the whole time, but you've, sometimes you can be disturbed by that. 
That means if you don't have a means of live livelihood, you're dependent on miracles all the time. Sometimes you feel, oh, that's no good. No, that's very good. Become comfortable in being and living in the miracles. Become comfortable in living in this, in 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 in, in the in the majesty of the unknown, in the mystery, where the, the miracle can come and doesn't, it's not your concern how it will come. It will show up. It for sure will show up. But for that, it has to be real. God has to be real to you. Draw closer. More prayer, more joy, more concern about other people, more charity, more giving, more tuning into the to the real channel of life. There's nothing to worry about. The world is becoming closer, more connected. God is becoming more engaged, more involved. The systems might collapse, but that's exactly the point. Because God doesn't want systems anymore. He wants to feed us directly. Manna from heaven. But he wants to give us manna in a way that we're not starving when we're eating it. He wants that manna should be satiated. The impossible that the not having the food will satiate. Not having the security, that itself is our satiation. And anything else doesn't make us happy. May we merit to be able to maintain this consciousness and this awareness. And as a result of that, be in a real deep state of Anil Adodi, I am my beloved. And God should say, Adodi, I am to you, bringing us and revealing to us complete redemption. Complete Gula revealing Mashiach to us. May it be now.